0: Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism. What does not kill me makes me stronger. Hello, listeners. Michael here. If you joined me last time, you'll know that this is the second half of my conversation with Bob Kavner. If you didn't, I highly recommend going back for part one. In part two, Bob shares some really fascinating insights and stories while describing his journey away from at and and into the digital revolution happening around them. So, without further ado, please enjoy the exciting conclusion, and don't forget to rate and review afterwards. Thanks for listening. During that time at AT&T, I know there was an analysis done of what the wireless network opportunity or wireless uh, spectrum opportunity could be. If I researched this right, they, there was a projection of you know, there will only be, ever be 900,000 users I'd love to understand more what your experience was with that analysis of the wireless industry.
1: Back in 84, when I joined AT&T, right at that point, it was the breakup of the Bell system. I was brought in because they were breaking up into seven regional telephone companies. And the AT&T would have manufacturing, uh, Western Electric would have R&D. The laboratories will have the long-distance business, and for the first time from the federal government, the license to be in competitive businesses like the computer business. That was the deal. But there were some small things that had to be worked out. There was an, a young little business. No one knew what it was going to be called cell business, cell service. In meetings at AT&T, we were deciding what goes to the seven regional companies, what stays here. And we would negotiate with them. We finally decided, send them the cell business, right? Because we didn't think it was going to be that good. Now, a lot of the technology in the cell cellular world, the patents were at t patents. We invented the cellular industry with Motorola. Motorola did quite a bit of the chipsets, but we did most of the the networking technology was ours. Motorola did the terminal technology. Their patents pursued theirs. So we sent the cell business, which in 1984 was hard, you know, there was a big suitcase in the back of a car. The car service was the thought to the regional companies. The federal government said each region of the country would get two licenses. The telephone companies will get one license and there'll be entrepreneurs will be able to vie for the second license. So move forward a year or two. And a guy named Craig McCaw and his brother up in Seattle started acquiring licenses, the second license for the Northwest. They picked up your area. They picked up the Denver license pretty quickly uh, for the mountain region. I get a call from one of my colleagues. I'm CFO of AT&T. But my colleague is the one selling, manufacturing the cellular switches and towers. We were manufacturing and selling them. To the operators. A guy named Craig McCaw is coming in and he'd like to buy a whole slew of this, our stuff, but he needs financing. So Craig McCaw comes in to the <laughs> this boardroom. It wasn't a board meeting, we we're just using the boardroom. And uh, he presents that he doesn't really fundamentally, I don't have any cash, but here's the cash flows if I buy your equipment, that I will have to pay off a loan. We sold him all this equipment. A lot of money at the time, and took a note back, and he paid it off over five years. And he built the Macaw network, and then he acquired more and more. And you know, off the cash flows, you know, used to acquire, he put that on, under his own business and created a national foot, almost a national footprint, called Macaw. So now you go to 1992, cell service was ubiquitous, beginning to be ubiquitous cell phones. This is pre-flip phone, but they still were now human size, not car size. Motorola did a great job of reducing the size of that. So more and more business people, for the most part, were getting cell phones. But because of my relationship in Silicon Valley, I also understood the miniaturization that was going on, that we were going down in size pretty quickly. And, that, and price performance was going to get to a point where cell phones can be bought out there for under a thousand bucks each and could be subsidized in in uh, subscriptions, so we had executive committee meetings and decided we need to go into this business we need to be in this business and Bob Allen and myself and another fellow, Alex Mandel, started meeting with Craig McCaw and uh, his number two guy jim Barksdale Jim Barksdale later went to be the president of um Federal Express and met with them and eventually agreed to buy Macaw Cellular for I think thirteen billion, a monster wow. amount of money at the time, and that became AT and T Cellular. That is AT and T Cellular today.
0: It was something that AT and T could have had all along. Is that right? We owned it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We
1: not owned it. We get owned it. We invented it. <laughs> we invented it. So, sorry. In the theme of your blog, what a bunch of assholes. You invent something, you believe in it, and then you let it go and you go buy it back for thirteen billion billion eight eight years later.
0: <laughs> from that experience, from that initial analysis to, to buying the McCall network, any major takeaways there, learnings from that, from that experience?
1: I don't want to over make it overly profound. And particularly, you know, I don't know if we're going to have time to talk about Idealab, which is the last 20 years of my career. But, you know, timing is so important. So, you know, Michael, you and I could come up with a business idea today, or maybe off of a new technology. The perfect timing is too early. The bad timing is too late or way too early we invented the cell technology but to commercialize it we would have had to have the patience to let it develop and let it miniaturize and and you know let the network quality be more dependable than it was back in 84 and whatever and because we were so excited to be in the computer business and modems and network switches that we didn't realize it was the we're letting go of something that eventually may be bigger. It takes perseverance. You know, sometimes you have a business opportunity and you just have to have the patience to let it mature so that the market comes to you. And often, most often, in my experience, we don't have the patience or the capital. And the capital doesn't have the patience. I ain't giving you any more money. You're not selling enough of this stuff, Right. I mean, what if I said to Craig McCarr at the time, I'm not going to lend you the money to buy our equipment? I don't know what he would have done. No bank was giving him money. You know, at that point, no one was, would have saw the cash flows there. So I, I don't know if there's a profound lesson. Timing is really important. I mean, later in my career, 1990, I don't know if you saw it. There's a movie out called General Magic. Not the greatest movie. I'm on an airplane flying back. Uh, last year, from maybe Singapore to San Francisco. I'm looking at General Magic. Well, so when I was running you know, this part of at and I invested in General Magic, the company. We were the major investor. And General Magic, in 19, yeah, 1992 period, we were inventing what is today the iPhone, a device that not only does calls, but could send messages, could go on to applications. Right. And we were way too early. And anyone listening to this, go watch the General Magic. It's a documentary about what was being done there. You'll actually see me in there's a frame, a couple of frames of me at a meeting at General Magic. So if you're way too early, it's really hard to get the patient capital and you to be patient. But being too early is perfect.
0: Timing is everything, I guess.
1: And yeah, Earthling, you mentioned Earthling. We were too early perfect, too early perfect. We, we organized ourselves for torrential growth, and the torrential growth came later. Same thing with Pandora.
0: And were there a long period with Earthlink and Pandora where the team and, and yourself, were you, were you kind of gritting your teeth hoping you'd be right? Or did you know that it was coming?
1: We skipped some steps. I left AT&T in 84 because I felt that AT&T was not going to be the innovator I wanted to be part of. And some other reasons, too, that deal with your podcast. Quickly met Sky Dayton, a kid, 23 years old, who had a business in the back of a coffee shop, giving internet connections to people. And someone said, you got to meet this kid. So I go meet the kid. He's talking about creating a internet service. This is is dial-up internet service the first the beginning of the internet public network but i knew all about that technology i knew you know from that you know i lived around bell lab i knew where this was going so i said i'm in i gave him a hundred thousand dollars another guy gave him a million some other people gave him money i went and chaired his board and he was our ceo i helped him become a ceo mentoring i loved it right well, i was on the shore seeing the wave. we all saw the wave. so that one, it, it was as perfect as as one could get, and you know we went city to city and acquired the whole country, just like McCaw did on the on the other side. And you know we landed up with I don't know five billion dollar revenue company. At, this is nine ninety nine for dial up service.
0: Would love to go back to your leaving AT and think it was in ninety four, if I'm not mistaken. You've been there for, for 10 years. I think that you were next in line to to run that organization. And you decide to leave and join a new agency in Los Angeles, uh, being started by Michael Ovitz called CAA. Would love to hear how that came to be and how you how you make such a such a big decision, big career move.
1: So I'm gonna reorient the facts a little bit. This is nineteen ninety-four. I was over that winter a meeting with Bill Gates and Nathan Merbold, who was his chief technology officer at the time, about the two companies building a competitor to AOL. AOL was launched and doing pretty well. My concept, and I think Bill's concept as well, was we would host applications in our network. We would use the at network, put servers in our network, and then companies could put their applications on our service in the network as opposed to in their data centers. Sounds like cloud computing, doesn't it? So let's build a new internet service, Microsoft and AT&T, to create that kind of network. The deal was that we would put 200 million into the new entity, a joint venture, 50-50. Uh, they put 200 million into the entity. We would buy 5% of Microsoft stock. They'd buy 5% of AT&T stock. That's a kind of fundamentalism. So I go to the executive committee meeting maybe in February, January of 94 of AT&T. Bob Allen chairs it. It's our resource allocation meeting, critical meeting, tremendous amount of staff work is done. Alex Mandel, a wonderful, wonderful guy, runs the long distance business and he and stands up and says, I'm going to need $3 billion in capital to modernize the switching network. The internal rate of return is going to be 34%. Uh, The year-over-year payback will be three and a half years. And uh, Bob Allen goes to me, Bob. I said, well, Bob, as you know. And Bob Allen went to, to Redmond with me to meet with Bill Gates and The others at Microsoft. So he was very familiar with what I was working on. It's an island. And I said, as you know, and everyone else in the room, maybe five people, their executive committee, we want to build this new network, a digital network. Our network, the long distance network, was fundamentally analog. Uh, A digital network to do hosting. That was the word we were using, not cloud, but hosting and describing hosting. I need $200 million now. By the way, I was off by an order of magnitude. Alex was asking for $500 million, uh, not $5 billion. And uh, I need $200 million now. I have no idea what the IRR is going to be. I think I'm coming back for a lot more money, but this is important to our future. And so in the, after the discussion, Bob said, you know, our long-distance business is our cash cow. We make $5 billion in free cash flow a year off the long-distance business. I've got to feed the business. I've got to give Alex what he needs. Bob, see what you could do with 50 million. Michael, at that moment, I felt the most humiliation I've ever felt in my life. And the humiliation was about the voice inside my head. i got to go back to my people who have been working their ass off on this, thinking that I'm going to get this done and tell them, no way could you do anything like this. And I got to call Bill Gates and tell him we could do a micro thing that's not going to be that meaningful. Inside myself, I was feeling I got to get out of here. That was my impetus. I got to get out of here. Yeah. Allison was not happy with me traveling around the world on my Gulfstream, by the way. <laughs> At that point, I got my Gulfstream. But the humiliation, you know, not... Of having to back off of that and tell Bill that we're not going to do it together, that put me on the route to leave, which I did in in June. I didn't have a job when I I went to Bob Allen a week later and said, Bob, I think you know I probably should do something else. I I respect the decision you made. It's probably the right one for the short term. I don't think it's the right for the long term, but I get it. I was your CFO. I know about quarterly earnings. But I, I think I need to do something else. And he said, you know, Bob, why don't you and Allison go take a vacation for a week and think about it, which we did do. I came back and said, no, this is what I want to do. I never looked for a job in my life. Everything up to this story, everything came to me. So, you know, I started letting the word out that I'm, oh, he said to me this, Michael. This is Bob Allen saying the chairman and CEO of at and Bob, you have an incredibly important job here. You don't have an idea what you want to do. I wish you would stay, but if you don't, I will keep this quiet. I won't tell anyone that you're leaving. Find what's right for you. Give me enough notice, and we'll deal with it then. But right now, you've got a lot on your shoulders in this company. Honor your responsibilities, and I'll honor this privacy. Wasn't that unbelievable? It's incredible. Right? A lot of other people in there said, hey, you want out of here? Let me show you what out of here is like. Yeah. Right? It, it, and what an honorable person. We maintained a relationship up until a year ago when he passed. I mean, I was always so appreciative of that. I think he was appreciative of me not dropping out for those six months where I you know, I looked for something. And I went to the wrong thing. I left for absolutely the wrong thing. I was offered to be CEO of Prudential Insurance, which was just down the street in Newark, New Jersey. It wouldn't require a move. Um, but Michael Ovitz, and he was running not a startup. He was running the most powerful agency in Hollywood. He probably had 70% as clients, 70% of actors, actresses, directors, screenwriters, uh, uh, novelists. It wasn't something to start. It, he had another agenda why he wanted me, which I'll be happy to
0: share with you. What was it that, about that opportunity that attracted you as opposed to Prudential or anything else you could have gotten done?
1: I'll tell you about what the opportunity was. But after understanding what it was, I went to Allison, my wife, my partner, you know, the person that hopefully I learned from my history how to deal with, and said, We have these two alternatives. We can go to New stay where we are living in Summit, New Jersey. I belong to Baltimore Golf Club. The kids go to these schools, and I could run prudential insurance with all those. Th- 40,000 insurance agents and real estate businesses and banking, whatever they did, or I could go, we can go to LA and I could be part of creative artists. And she said, why don't we take the E-ticket? That's an expression when you go, when you used to go to amusement parks, the E-tickets were the best rides, right? The a tickets were the, the teacups. So why don't we take the E-ticket and go to LA? And that gave me the permission slip. If she didn't say that, I probably would have. You'd be interviewing someone who ran prudential dental insurance, and off I went with Mike, which turned
0: out a year later to be an absolute failure. And what made it a failure a year later?
1: So uh, a little, you need a little background. Michael meets with me uh, while I'm at AT and T, I tell him the, one of my roles at AT and T is, is I was the point person with all of the people running the media companies, you know, newspaper studios, whatever. And Michael was in that orbit. You know, I was I tell Michael that I'm gonna be leaving. And he said, well I want you to join me. I said what? Oh. Well, i am gonna join you? He said, he said, I want out of the agency business. He said, I'm making thirty million dollars a year here. And I'll do that the rest of my life. But I want to own a studio. And he said and you know Mashusta in Japan who owns Universal Studios and they Bought it and, and don't know what to do with it. Why don't you join me and we'll convince them to sell us Universal Studios, and we'll make the announcement that you're coming to CAA to open up the digital division. At the time, CD-ROMs was the main digital platform. You know, so we'll have feature films, we'll have television, we have books, and you'll run digital. So. That was the business opportunity that Allison says, let's go do. But the side story is how he attracted me. Remember the story I told you how AT&T attracted me? Well, here I am, second time I back. So Michael says, "Uh, what are you earning? I said, well, Michael, you know, my total package is about a million and a half dollars, you know, with base compensation and bonus. And, you know, stock and whatever, about a million and a half. He said, okay, your base salary would be a million and a half. I said, well, I have stock options on top of that. He said, well, I don't have any options. I'll give you a million and a half bonus a year, guaranteed the first year. Wow. He says, uh, what else do you need? Well, I said, well, AT&T has a doctor for the executive committee, and so he takes care of all of our medical needs. He said, uh, Dr. Your dad may even know this, guys. So I want to get it right. Gittnick, Dr. Gittnick heads internal medicine at UCLA. He's your, he'll be your concierge doc. I said, okay. Wow. He said, what else do you need? I said, well, my kids, you know, they go to school. L.A. don't have great school. Well, how old are they? Well, you know, one's three and one's, I said, okay, they're going to go to um, Thomas Dye, J. Thomas Dye in Bel Air. Uh, they'll be in by September. I said, well, that's great. Uh, I said, what else you need? I said, well, you know, I belong to Paltas Raw. I like golf. He said, Bel Air Country Club. It'll take me till October, but you'll be in Bel Air Country Club. That's where you belong. He said, what else do you need? I said, well, I, got a, I need a house. He says, okay, that'll be your signing bonus. He said, John Hughes, the director of Home Alone. He lives in Chicago, but he has a house in Brentwood Park. Beautiful house. Go take a look at it. He really doesn't need it. I'll convince him to sell you the house and <laughs> you'll have the house as your signing bonus. I go on the house and this is oh, and the last thing, what else he, he said, I said, Well, I have a Gulf Stream. <laughs> access, you know, to Gulf Stream and he says, Well, that one's a tough one. I said he said, No one really knows it, but I have a I forgot what he had, citation ten or something. And I'll give you some hours on it. I said, okay, deal. And that's, I landed up in LA. It's creative artists on that deal. Now, we spent the year doing exactly that agenda. In that year, 94 to 95, the internet was bubbling up. And while I was there, I did that investment, went to become chairman of Earthlink. At the same time, Bill Gross out of Caltech was starting Ideal App. And I was helping, giving him advice on how to start that, And so we went off to Kyoto, uh, the headquarters of Mashusta, and uh, convinced them to sell us Universal Studios. He got the Brockman family, who just sold their 20% interest in DuPont for $7 billion, got them to put up the cash with a deal that he would be CEO Uh, that I'd run operations, that the head of feature films, Ronnie Meyer, will run the feature film division and so forth. And, oh, by the way, young Brofman would run the music business. In the last minute, Mike Obitz asked for a large sum of money and hundreds of millions from the Brofmans in order to leave CAA because he was going to have to leave it behind. It's not a salable thing. It's an agency. And the Brockman said, that's enough, Michael. We're going to do this deal without you. And gave him a $15 million check as a finder's fee. And the Brockman family, history says, bought, went off and bought Universal Studios. And took the head of feature film from creative artists. And he left creative artists and became president. And Michael Overtz was left in the cold because all the agents you know, this became very big public information in June of 95. And no one wanted him in the building, even though he owned the building and the company. Really? And so he was not welcome in his own family. It was like a father having an affair and the kids learning about it, right? The guy he went to high school with was Mike Eisner. And Mike Eisner said, I need a president. Why don't you join me at, at Disney? And Michael Ovitz uh, eventually, you know, a couple of weeks later, went to become president of Disney. He offered me to join him. I left at and The last thing I wanted to do was go to a large company. And I was in conversation with Bill Gross about starting Idealab. And so I said, no. Michael Ovitz, who is known to be very, uh, a very uh, tough guy, and sometimes people even accuse him of not having good uh, moral character, he screws people, he was always fair to me. He he honored every obligation. He's moral as well as legal obligation to me. He was very fair to me. So I have nothing but personally uh, nice things to say about how he handled his relationship with me. But I was out in the cold. Right. I I had money now in my pocket. But, you know, I'm 50 years old. And what am I going to do with the rest of my career? I had young kids. And so off I went to help Bill Gross start Idealab, and that became the next 20-year journey to now.
0: That's a hell of a story. You mentioned having no interest in joining a large company again. What was it about your exposure to folks like Bill Gates and these other entrepreneurs uh, like Bill Gross that are running around and creating the future, contrasted with that that focus on cash flow, quarter-to-quarter earnings. I mean, was that experience what informed your desire to work more with entrepreneurs and less so with with large companies? Or was there something else behind that?
1: Large corporations have a risk that most of them fall into, which is the bureaucracy becomes more powerful than market-based decision-making. And for simplicity, in the bureaucracy are the quarterly earnings pressures and all of that. I just didn't want you know, I because I was on the board of Sun Microsystems in particular, from its earliest days to when, you know, it was a rocket ship and saw, you know, how they made decisions and what the culture was to allow that company to grow like that. That was so informing to me that I just never wanted to go back to those old you know, ways of making decisions on consensus building and political maneuvering and whatever. I like the rawness. I got the taste, I was lucky enough to get the taste of the rawness of intelligent, fast, unvarnished decision making. I want to throw a bouquet to two CEOs, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, because they are, you know, Jeff today is still running, running one of the biggest corporations on earth. But the culture he has in place allows for honesty, allows for meritorious behavior to rise to the top. But he, he spends a lot of time seeing that culture operates that way. Bill Gates, he understood that if a company doesn't get traumatized, this is the theme of your podcast. So I'm just substituting company for person. Uh, if a company doesn't get traumatized, it will go into a track that eventually will stop it from growing. And so Bill Gates, in his years running Microsoft, self-traumatized his own company. And I remember spending time with him, 1994, about the time I left at and after our joint venture didn't work. And he goes off on one of his, his annual retreat. And comes back and writes an, e- an email to everyone in the company, and that's unusual in large company for the CEO right there, right there, everyone in the company saying, "Every project in this company has to be rationalized by how it fits with this new thing called the Internet. We are not doing any more projects that do not fit into an Internet strategy. You talk about traumatizing a company, And he then enforced it. So you can self-traumatize a company. You can self-traumatize yourself. But more often trauma comes from the outside, which becomes a very valuable asset as the theme of your podcast has been talking about.
0: I think it was Andy Grove that said bad companies are destroyed by crisis, good companies survive them, and great companies are improved by them.
1: Yeah, so I had a very good friendship with Andy Grove. And you think of his life where you know he came out of that Hungarian revolution how much that has informed him to be a driven and yet listening leader. So he's driven. He has a vision. He knows where he wants to go, and yet he's listening and will be – he modifies when he hears things that he doesn't want to hear. He he was a wonderful leader, just an amazing UNB, well-informed.
0: And would love to hear what Idea Lab is and how you and Bill Gross have gone about this uh, this process of incubating so many incredible companies.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm now leaving creative artists. Bill comes to me, eh? two other people, Ben Rosen. Ben Rosen was a chairman of Compact, I think at the time, but a very accomplished guy. And another guy named Howard Morgan. We were... I think the original three behind Bill Gross. And Bill Gross is looking to raise capital. And so Bill, he said, do you think that Steven Spielberg would be you know, interested in investing? I said, well, I'm not, I know Bill, I know Steven, and I know his manager. I'll try to set up. So we have a meeting. His manager is Jerry Prockheiser or something like that. And uh, so Bill goes, we go in the meeting and Bill says, I have these four ideas. And what I want to do is take these ideas and make companies. And so my company makes companies. Other companies make products and services. My company makes companies. That's what I want to do. And here's my first four ideas. Let me go over them with Stephen. And Stephen engages and all four, likes them. And then Brockauer says, uh, well, Bill, uh, you're looking to raise $2 million at a $4 million valuation. And you're valuing your four ideas at a million bucks. A million bucks for an idea? That's, that's pretty expensive. Just These are ideas, right? You haven't done it. No, I haven't done anything. These are ideas. Well, that's way too expensive. You know what Bill Gross said? On the spot. <laughs> What's that? You're right, Jerry. I have four more ideas I'm going to put in the company. And he goes, bingity, 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 bingity on four more ideas. And Stephen interrupts and says, oh, that's terrific. That sounds awfully fair. I'd like to invest. (laughs) 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 That's how we got the first meaningful trotter capital into Ideal Lab. But to be be correct, Ideal Lab is Bill Gross. Bill Gross is a well-developed engineer. He's on the board of Caltech. He has an amazing market sense. you, You remind me a little of him from a market sense standpoint. Uh, he understands markets, customers. You know that's always where he goes first. He thinks about where what needs are out there in in the world and how technology can be used to to improve it or change it. And he's magnetic in personality. And he is a terrible operator, and the first to tell you that. But he loves starting companies. So my role has been in the 20 years, among other people, is when. We take an idea to make it into a company, and we recruit a young person—generally a young person—who's maybe a you know division-level person at a company or in the related industry. We they get attracted to be a CEO. I am that that person's mentor as chairman and help them build a company. So I don't want to even suggest these are my ideas. They are not. My relationship is to take the idea iteration process and those that deserve, or we believe deserve, to make a real company out of it.
0: What role does, does failure play in that process of iterating, in the process of launching, launching new things, seeing what sticks, and learning from it?
1: Yeah, I think we've done 35 companies, thereabouts, in the 20 years. I bet 25 are pretty much in the failure category. Maybe some, you know, in the failure category, I'm going to say we got thirty cents on the dollar. I'm going to call that a failure, as opposed to total flop when We lost all our money, so we, the whole business, is about failure, right? Uh, <laughs> you better be learn about failure. Yeah. Uh, and I would say, by the way, Idealab has gotten better, but I don't think we're the best in learning from failure. I still don't think we're the best because. We there's something about human nature that you want to believe your own bullshit. And oh, this is going to be the greatest thing at all. Or, you know, an example, we probably put, I don't know, 10 to 15 million behind um, a 3D printing business. Now, our strategy was we're going to make a 3D printer that retails at 500 bucks. And our bill of material is going to be we're going to tra- target 250. And, you know, we had a business plan to do that. And the market will be schools, a classroom, and then people could afford a 500 thing for their home. But it's not for industry. We wanted to bring it to the consumerish market, small business market. We were way too early that we thought the technology, technology curve would come down faster than it did. And, you know, our bill of materials of 700, we're selling at 500. You can't do that very long, (laughs) but we kept doing it because we we were confident, you know, that we're going to get this thing down there and we could build it. And only if we could scale, we could buy, you know, the whole shop tank stuff. If you gave me scale, I could cut my bill of material down in there. So most of our failures, I think, kind of come back to ourselves. They become our children. And you don't give up on kids, right? But hey, they're not children. <laughs> and, we're, and and our weakness is, I think we're too much of lovers, you know, as opposed to killers. If you, if you went to two extremes, we're we, too much on the lover side than the killer side. Now, that's my own diagnostic. Bill probably would shoot me when he hears this. it will become a killer at that point. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. I mean, it's fascinating though to to go through that process. I think it was Edison that sort of proliferated this idea of invention by constantly finding ways that don't work.
1: That quote is in our boardroom at Idealab. Yeah, that it's a wonderful quote about I found a thousand ways for it not to work or something like that. There are two predecessors of Bill Gross that we look to Edison and Galileo.
0: That's great. Bob, you, you spent so much time with me today. I, I really appreciate it. As we're coming towards the end here, I'd love to ask you about one more thing that I think is really fascinating. You mentioned this notion of that, that Bill Gates was so talented at creating his own trauma. Are there ways that you look at the organizations you're involved with or for your own personal life where you think about how to create your own trauma to grow from? Is that is that something that you see put into practice either for yourself or, or for the, the leaders that you help uh, mentor?
1: Self-traumatizing. Well, it's a dramatic term. It, it's probably not an appropriate. It, it's it's an overdramatic term. Asking the uncomfortable question of yourself, of your organization, uh, the question that could put onto the table an answer that says we don't have it right for the leader to do that. It's very hard. And when leaders do that, it's incredibly valuable. And it could be, I guess, in your own personal life, too. You know, I don't have this right. I think, you know, w- without driving it to a point where you have no self-confidence or that you're always up feeling like you're in quicksand. I think making sure the bravado is not taken over, that uh, the underbelly is always examined in a fair And respectful manner is what I'm talking about. You know, trauma is an easy way of saying it. But out of that could be, you know, we have to hit the restart button. In the last 10 years, that's called a pivot. And maybe the word pivot was a way of taking the harshness out of trauma.
0: Are there specific things that you look for in your organizations to make sure those those checks on um, you know looking at the underbelly are are consistently happening. well, you
1: say my organization. I'm you know right now on the sliding end of my career, um, and I'm on uh, three boards I, I i I haven't been on a large corporate board in maybe seven years, and I'm only interested in young startups, emerging companies. the bigger the audaciousness of the business, the better is where I like to be. And so generally, uh, the answer to your question, in today's world, most of the people I work with, meaning the CEOs, have this, have that ability. Michael, you have it. You, Thank you. And I don't think you had it four years ago, five years ago. I think you grew it. And I look at you with such admiration of the journey that you have taken in just the five years that I've kind of been around you from a business standpoint. And of course, the way you when your sister died and the way you stood up and spoke to all of us, I was so taken by that. It showed a strength of character, you know, that I didn't know you had. I I didn't know you that well. You gave comfort to a lot of people, but you gave a perspective about life that was so far beyond your years. So a person like you, you're gonna do it from here on in your life, ask the hard questions, it's in your bloodstream now. And you'll make mistakes, but your self-correcting mechanism is well honed. You know, for the remainder of my career, it is people like you I like to be surrounded with.
0: Well, Bob, I, I can't tell you what that means to me, truly. I am so grateful for the conversations we're able to have and the mentorship that that you share with me and and so many other people in the community. I think the moment that you allude to I think is the start of really my fascination with with this concept, with this this notion of trauma or pain or challenges and how they can how they can drive growth and really contribute a tremendous amount of value and depth to to life. And so I I'm just fascinated by that that concept. And I love exploring it, especially with folks like yourself who just have such an incredible perspective.
1: Yeah. And then one last thought, Michael, is that uh, how old are you now? Are you, let me, let me guess. Are you 33?
0: Nailed it. Yep.
1: So you're 33. I'm 77. In some ways, Michael, you mentor me. Mentoring doesn't require the older person to the younger person. You have people that may be listening to this who are your age, who are acting as mentors today, or maybe not, but should be. What mentoring is, is sharing your life experience and helping others on their journey. Um, So I want to thank you for the insights you've given me in the years that I have been around you. I'm going to try to stay healthy so I can get more from you.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you, Michael. I hope that you do. And it's been an absolute pleasure, Bob. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. Okay. My pleasure. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you, at whatdidn'tkillyou.com, and you can follow along at You on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.